This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, uh, where we discuss computers, new technology, the internet, uh, all of the fun stuff out there. Um, tonight on the show, uh, we're joined by Colin Jacobs. Uh, Colin, uh, how's the, the weekend technology been for you, do you think? Oh, pretty exciting. Lots going on as always, so let's get into it. Yeah. And also joined by uh, San Huang. Um, what's the best tech uh, you've been across this week, San? What's been kind of floating your boat, as it were? Um, at the moment, I'm just very attached to my PS4. It's finally uh, post-exam time for me, so lots of gaming. Catching up on all the stuff you didn't get to play. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. That's cool. Um, I'll be with you too as well on Warren Davies. Um, Australia has loved the car for a long time, uh, for decades in fact, but there's signs that that's finally changing um, here and in many other countries around the world. Uh, the proportion of those under 25 uh, actually getting a car licence and bothering to get a car uh, is falling. Um, while lifestyles may be playing a large part in this, uh, we live at home longer, study more, uh, earn uh, more a little bit later in life, the rise of intelligent cars may mean we won't be creating as many drivers uh, in the future, which is interesting. Um, in a moment, we'll be talking with a local academic studying the nature of car transport and how technology, among other things, is changing how we get about. Um, if, like me, you grew up uh, being read classic Australian stories like Possum Magic, uh, Adventures of Blinky Bill, The Adventures of Snugglepot and Cuddle Pie, there are a lot of adventures back in the day, uh, I seem to recall. Um, you'll be pleased to know that local developers are working on bringing this kind of Australiana to life in a new game called Paperbark. Um, I just checked out a, a video which I've been assured is uh, pretty old and was kind of like, you know, I felt like I was in the bush with my feet up. It was 45 degrees. There were ants on my thongs. Um, it was really nice. Um, the game received funding from uh, Film Victoria uh, earlier in the year. And we'll be joined by one of the team uh, later in the show to chat about Paperbuck, which is great. But before we do that, uh, let's take a look at what's making news in technology here and around the world. Um, MacBook Pros. I, I use a MacBook Pro, um, and there is a, a fairly recent model that's come out. Um, Colin, what's going on with MacBooks at the moment? Well, it's I- interesting. Apple stories always generate you know, a lot of love and a lot of hate, and the release of the new MacBook Pros there um, generate a lot of hate. Oh. A lot of people were saying they've Apple have abandoned the base of, of people that use you know work with um, images and movies and the creative types because the MacBook Pro was limited to 16 gigabytes of RAM. Hmm. Uh, However, uh, we've got some sales figures now, and it's going like gangbusters. Right. So the the this is a case where the the pundits were wrong, mm. um, and people are speaking with their wallets. So it either means that that the RAM limits aren't an issue for people, and they're just happy to have the technology. What are you going to mm. do? You know, move back to Windows. You know, mm. you'll, you'll pay for it and you'll take it. Um, off, you know, it's a strategy that often works with Apple, and not many other companies can get away with that. Um, but it turns out that the limit is due to the. Um, is actually Intel's fault. So the chipset that they're using in the MacBook Pros can only support 16 gigabytes of uh, low power RAM. So if they, they if they went to 32 gig or something like that, then the battery life would take a huge hit. So they Apple basically decided people will live with the limit um, and rather have the higher battery life. And it looks like uh, they were right. 
Interesting. Um, there was a criticism that they'd um, uh, deserted developers as well. Uh, some of the function keys um, and the the kind of uh, dicky little kind the of emoji bar. emoji touch bar across there. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it feels like a more consumer friendly device than than previously. Um, but I don't know. Like I, most of the people that I've been on Mac for I don't know maybe three four years now, and most people I know aren't doing a lot of heavy work with it. It's mostly just for the functionality and um, everything just works and and all of that. Yeah, I mean, and if you're a dev- developer or science type, you know, the Unix operating system is still you know, re- really where it's at. And so moving away is, is hard. It's pretty sticky, even though they're now sort of the biggest, evilest corporation in the world. Mm. Um, I've been playing around with running Mac OS in a virtual machine on a Linux Linux box just to sort of see what the alternatives are. And that actually works pretty well. So there's a like tiny chink in the armor, but if you're going to have a gonna, gonna have a laptop these days and you're in those fields, Apple's still probably um, got you. Sam, are you kind of iOS loyal or you'll just use whatever's working for you best at the time? Or? <laughs> I've actually never been um, a, uh, an Apple person. Mm. Um, I've had a few Apple mobile products, but um, I've never really stuck to them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, out of convenience, I mostly just use Windows. Mm. Another interesting stat I saw just while on Apple real quick is that um, out of all of the smartphone profits made in the world, Apple's got 91% of them. So mm. they don't have the... 91% market share, but the app iPhones are so profitable yeah. that the you know all of the the Android phone makers are basically sort of fighting over the crumbs. So that's that's actually kind of scary. Mm. Something that's also scary is uh, is the internet at times. Um, one of the uh, internet pioneers, uh, Bruce Schneier, um, uh, put forward a, a dire proclamation about the state of the uh, internet uh, in the U.S. I think House of Representatives um, uh, recently. Um, Colin, what's what's he banging on about? Do you think? Yeah, he, the main reason for that is is the growth of the internet of things. Everything's becoming connected, and everything's becoming connected you know, via the internet. You know, Schneier is a pretty well respected voice in the security field. I, you know, I've been uh, reading what he's been saying for a long time and it's always been pretty spot on and he's not one for, you know, for going off the rails or trying to grab headlines. But he made a, a, a pretty convincing case that um, the way he puts it, um, it won't be your toasters connected to the internet. You'll have a computer in your house that can toast things and you'll have a, a computer in your house that can keep things cool, your fridge and, um, you know, your phone is a computer that can make phone calls. Mm. Um, and the vulnerabilities that will be open up when all of these things are out there and able to be hacked is going to be pretty scary um, because every aspect of your life and everything in your house will be will be vulnerable and he does point out that uh things like light switches or thermostats and so on you don't replace those you know every every 18 months like you might a phone or something like that and so the vulnerabilities there will be much harder to fix Mm. um, and they'll be around for decades very hard to keep all of that stuff updated and to be thinking about, you know, geez, have I got the latest patch yeah. for my light switch or, you know, uh, my roller door or something like that. And all of the good things about the internet, it empowers you, it, it means things can scale really quickly and easily. All of these help attackers. And the fundamental point I was making is attack is always easier than defense, mm. um, you know, when it comes to technology and the internet. And, you know, as the internet becomes more ubiquitous in everything we do, those new vectors are opened up and that, again, multiplies the, the possibilities for mischief. Mm. So it's quite a lot of food for thought in there. And I've heard, you know, alternative proposals that the internet of things should be actually a separate network. There's no reason it actually has to be the same internet. Mm. I don't know about that, you know, infrastructure challenges and um, uh, you know, a new networking technology and whatnot would you know, add to the cost and people yeah. are trying to get these things rolled out as soon as possible. But... 
um, pretty scary. Mm. Our uh, air conditioning units at a place I worked at um, got hacked once, and they oh. shut, they shut them off for the weekend, which was actually really bad. I mean, it wasn't a hospital or anything like that, or, yeah. or a library, but um, yeah, they were able to turn them off, and it was just a you know um, just a, a, a kick between the legs really for mm. the person who who wanted to have a go. Um, but before we we sort of get all stuck in the doom and gloom of the internet, um, I was recently at uh, PAX Australia, which was a gaming convention, the biggest um, in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, that was on two weeks weekends ago um and some of the trends that we're exploring um technology um particularly with local devs um as of this past year uh there were tons and tons of vr games which has really taken uh the the industry by storm and then outside of that um another thing that sort of blindsided us was uh there were the vr games which were the height of tech um, and there are lots of, lots of couch multiplayer games because um, people who grew up around the Nintendo 64, the PS1, got used to playing uh, couch games with their, their brothers, sisters and cousins. Mm. So um, who knows if the internet will be the uh, end or be or. Um, was there anything in particular that you thought was really fun? Like, I, I guess we're kind of, fami- well, I mean, it's a new frontier VR and, and so yeah. forth, but we kind of understand the basics there. Was there anything else, like um, sort of homemade games or some really um, analog type models? Or Oh, so there was this really interesting game. I can't quite remember what it's called um, because I saw so many uh, games that weekend. Uh, but basically it was a space simulator game where it was kind of... Um, you were exploring uh, space and you were just in uh, a spaceship and so they created their own controller panel for this spaceship and you would play the whole game using this panel. Um, and it was just uh, astounding to watch people uh, watch, uh, like learn and panic in real time uh, as they played this game. Um, and from from my understanding, the the developer based um, the controller off um, submarines and that sort of thing. Um, so while the game won't be uh, released with this uh, uh, controller, they have they have promised that they will release uh, the um, blueprint so you can make your own. Ah, and yes, it was called Objects in Space. Objects in Space. That sounds pretty cool. Um, Another thing that is uh, is quite fun, um, SpaceX uh, have been running a, a competition, the Hyperloop pod competition. Um, the Hyperloop is basically a, a super fast um, uh, rail system. Um, I think there's magnets involved. It's kind of one of those levitating kind of strange things. It yeah, may, yeah. may not be magnet technology, but um, it's something like that. Yeah, the principle behind the Hyperloop is that you run it in a tube and you take all the air out so you can go really, really fast and probably magnets is the best way to, to get those speeds. Um, and yeah, there's been uh, a number of submissions from around the world, and um, uh, there's been uh, a few from Australia, um, including one from RMIT University um, uh, here in Melbourne. Um, the project uh, will actually be on show, I think, at um, uh, Future Assembly, which we might talk about uh, a little bit later. But uh, I don't know. Would you guys like to work on a project like that, um, whether it's Vic Hyper at RMIT or something else? Is that your kind of uh, level of geekery? I love the Hyperloop. Like yep. it's, uh, it's a new, interesting idea. The, the physics and the engineering are all pretty sound, mm. and yet it's it's really radical. And um, but it looks like it's actually going to happen. Like there's, I think, um, uh, Dubai. They're looking at one, and I've, I saw a presentation by the Victorian team. So, mm. um, by the RMIT team at a conference recently. Um, pretty interesting. They're like they've got some real engineering brains working on that, and the, the mm. next step for them is building a sort of scale model that's, that will run in a sort of a vac- um, like a vacuum tube, yeah. basically, um, in the United States. 
um, along with along with the competition. But it's pretty like it, it's it's pretty scary to think of getting on a train and and travelling sort of faster yeah. than the speed of sound, um, which of course you can do when there's no air. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know what happens if something goes wrong. But uh, but you know engineering has answers to these things and people did panic when steam trains were invented so um, <laughs> you know going over fifty miles an hour was seen as you know potentially people might suffocate so humans so can't I'm do that. To give it a go. <laughs> I'll definitely watch from the sidelines, especially initially, um, because yeah, it's just so intense. Like it's uh, the next step forward. I'm, I'm, I like the idea that private industry will look after this as well. Could mm. you imagine a sort of a Victorian um, project to kind of figure out should we be having hyperloops or not? Does it go through the city? Um, you know, where how are we going to disrupt people? Um, do we have to pay for it? Mm. Um, you know, does Elon Musk pay for it? So, who knows? Um, it is 7.15. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R uh, this week with Sam, Colin and Warren. Uh, Dr. Alexa Del Bosque, uh, is an academic at Monash University. She's a senior lecturer, uh, in the Monash Institute of Transport Studies within the Department of Civil Engineering. She's interested in cars. I'm not quite sure why, but we may find out. And she's been doing some work on the future of cars. Um, will we be driving them? Do we want to drive them? Uh, Alexa, thanks for joining us in the studio. Thanks for having me. What was your first car? Ooh, an 86 Honda Civic. Oh. Absolute. Mm, yeah, she had issues, but she was mine. Oh, they just keep on going, don't they? I'm sure it's still out there somewhere. <laughs> oh, it was running on three cylinders for a very long time, so I hope it's not running anymore. Oh. Uh, well, potentially um, no one will be driving it in the future. Um, they'll be putting out Hondas that um, uh, power around on their own steam. Um, uh, do you like the idea that we won't necessarily be driving cars or um, it, it'll just be a, a program or a function of, of the machine? I, I do wonder if we'll ever get to a stage where people look back and wonder how you could ever trust this dangerous machine to human judgment. You know, mm. almost everything in an airplane is autopilot. Why would we trust humans with cars? I don't know if we'll get there, and I don't think it'll happen anytime soon. But if nothing else, for the safety reasons, uh, automation makes sense. Mm. So it's not uh, it's not an overseas thing as well. It is happening here. There's been a lot of testing in, in Australia I was uh, reading about today. Um, do you think Australians more than anyone else will loathe sort of giving up and driving cars? Like it's a big thing. You go for a weekend drive, mm. Sunday drivers. Um, I don't know. We, we do love our cars, don't we? We do love our cars, but we, we also don't seem to mind government control over regulation as much as some other countries. So whilst I think it might take a while for it to catch on in Australia... Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we get to a point where it, if it's shown to be so much safer than human-driven cars that we might say, all right, this is the point where we cross the line and no more manual cars are allowed. Mm. Whereas in a country like America, well, they love their freedom. They might get the technology first, but I don't know about giving up that freedom of driving. In, in some of the inner city places, um, people are giving up cars and car share um, services are becoming more and more popular. So do you think there's a trend of people starting to see maybe cars more of an adjunct to the public transport system? And you know, could that could that trend continue or could, could cars fill some gaps in our, in our system if they're autonomous? Well, look, uh, there's a big difference between inner city living where you've got lots of different options to choose from. Cars are expensive. Where are you going to park it? So sharing it makes sense. In the rest of Australia, in suburban areas, in regional rural areas, uh, the car, whether it's automated or not, I don't think is ever going to be completely obsolete. 
do you think um, do you think it's a generational um, difference as well? Do you find uh, I know one of your projects is uh, understanding um, sort of car decisions uh, by Australian millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think younger younger drivers are less inclined to have a car or want to drive a car? Why is that? If so, yeah, no, there is evidence showing that the millennial generation, the younger generation is taking longer to get driver's licenses than in in the past. They're less likely to own a car. They're using other modes a bit more. Um, Car is still king for that group, but there seems to be more of an openness to looking at other options. Whereas in the past, say the baby boomer generation, the car was your status symbol. It was the only way you could get out of your parents' home, the only way uh, you could go out and have a date. Uh, And it, it said a lot about who you were and where you were in society. And that side of the romantic side of cars, I don't think is quite as strong amongst the younger generation. It's such like a male thing to do, like at a barbecue or like, you know, Christmas parties or something like that. Everyone's kind of checking out, what did you drive up in? Mm-hmm. You know, is it good? What's your point of view? You know, is it, have you had this one before? That kind of thing. Just the idea that you sort of um, just get thrown out of a car as it cruised by and went to pick up somebody else, like a, you know, a fleet of autonomous cars. It's kind of really weird. Mm-hmm. Like, what are blokes going to talk about uh, over the barbecue, <laughs> I wonder? Um, so what are some of the interesting points that are coming out in your work? I, I realise the project's kind of um, just started, um, I think, earlier this year and, and mm-hmm. runs for a little while. Uh, have you learned anything that surprised you so far? Uh, well, we've been looking at the travel behaviour of millennials for a little while now, um, and the, it seems the biggest shift really is not just about car ownership, but it's a big change in millennials' life in general. They're taking longer to get married, get a full-time job, they're more likely to be studying, going to uni than in the past, and all of that means that they have, uh, for some millennials, they have less money for a car and less need for one until much later in life. The big million-dollar question is once they hit those milestones and start the family and buy the house, then are they going to go straight back to driving cars just like in the past? And the, the design of Australian cities, you know, unless you're living right, in the, right on a tram line, it's very hard to get by without one. Do you? Is yeah. it something that comes up in your work a lot? Absolutely, because th- there's an attraction to living in those accessible inner areas when you're young. Um, a big increase in there's some neighbourhoods where over a quarter of the population is under, uh, is kind of in their 20s. But once they say, okay, now where do we settle down? Where can we afford to buy? Are they going to buy the apartment in the inner area? Or are they going to look at buying a house? In which case, you're talking suburbs suburbs of suburbs do you know what, like the density of, of of say cars per cars per person in like how, how much does it range from say like i guess maybe like parkville or princess hill mm. or something like that or even sort of melbourne oh, yeah. much less cars uh, compa- absolutely yeah. compared to say like dandenong or mm. sunshine or something like that yeah. where you need a car to get around yeah, i couldn't quote your numbers but absolutely okay. yeah put you on the spot there <laughs> here in brunswick there are new apartment developments that are going up where they build next to the train line and maybe give people a mikey or whatever and don't have car spaces mm-hmm. and car ownership is strongly discouraged i'd love that a mikey yeah. pass mm-hmm. it's, it's quite controversial because some people say well no you can't get by without a car and people will still have cars whereas the people buying the apartments are like no we're willing to willing to give it a go so so it's a, it's an, it's a debate that's happening right now and your, your work is Absolutely. informing that. Because some of those developments get approved, other ones, others get knocked back because I say you, you have to have car spaces. But car spaces add to the cost of building. Mm. Uh, it means you can fit in fewer apartments. And so if you don't have a car, why would you want to pay that extra cost for the apartment if you're not going to use that space? Do you think cars are changing for, for millennials as well? Do they have different expectations around technology? If it, if it's just transport or if it just, you know, they need to have the right music and they need to be able to stream or, I don't know, heaven forbid, take photos. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what do you think a car is to a millennial now compared to, say, their parents? 
Well, the car will still always be, well, in, in the Australian context, in most of Australia, it'll still be the ultimate freedom machine. It's mm. still the most convenient way to get around. Mm-hmm. But one aspect of cars we didn't anticipate was a car for a lot of young people is also a burden. It's the adult, grown-up responsibility. And not everybody wants to sign up for that. You want to save your money for other things, maybe travel, going overseas. And, and they're thinking a bit more utilitarian about whether to use that money for a car or other things. Do you think um, car manufacturers prefer automated cars or selling to people overall? Like, do you think they they have a preference? Uh, I certainly know that auto manufacturers are looking at it very carefully Mm. and thinking about new business models. And it's not just the manufacturers, the insurers um, are also looking at what does this mean for car insurance when uh, who who has the liability if an automated vehicle crashes, much as with the the Tesla autopilot uh, incident, Um, as well as how does insurance look at how do you look at insurance with shared car use with you know short term rentals of cars all all those kinds of issues. So what's the outlook in Australia for autonomous cars then? It's like there's not a day goes by without a new story and every auto manufacturer is investing you know, all of order billions of dollars mm-hmm. in the field. So it's evolving very rapidly. But I wonder, can the, the Australian attitude to cars and the law keep up? Well, that's the great unknown, really. What's the um, what's going to be the rate of, of adopting of automated vehicles? Uh, and smarter minds than I have have tried to have a go based on how other technologies are taken up and what kind of take-up curves you see. And they're looking at kind of 2040, 2050. We'll probably reach something like saturation, but what that saturation level looks like, nobody knows. Is 30% of the population going to want an automated vehicle? Is 75? Are we going to make it illegal not to? That we don't know until... And personally, I don't think we'll know until they start getting out on the road and people can try them for themselves mm. and see if it's something they want to pay extra for. Uh, speaking of some of the greatest minds, uh, I did note today that uh, Morrissey has written a letter to the uh, GM of, uh, or to General Motors actually, um, to the CEO there, um, talking about um, their Volt and Bolt uh, eco-friendly cars. Uh, he's suggesting that there should actually be uh, vegan options for cars, which um, as soon as I saw it, it, it made a lot of sense. Um, he's actually pointing out that um, the, um, the GM in particular have been working with um, cattle ranchers where they do actually um, have um, a horrible uh, animal practices um, to acquire the leather uh, used for uh, interiors in, in GM cars. So, I don't know, it kind of, maybe a lot, of, a lot of young people are seeing them as kind of big, smelly, unsavory kind of objects that are just creating debt and, you know, it's hard to get around. Like, um, our, our panelists tonight um, drove an hour and a half to get here, which seems kind of crazy. Mm. There's got to be better ways to get around. Interesting. Well, we shall follow that uh, follow that with interest, and uh, we'd love if you would come back and, and tell us on the conclusion of your project what you found, and uh, whether we are going to be driving cars, and whether we should bother. Um, thanks for coming in tonight, Alexa. Thanks for having me. If you like games, and who doesn't, um, the opportunity to blend Australiana with games uh, is very enticing, and fortunately someone's had the great idea uh, of doing that. Uh, Terry Burdak is a uh, Melbourne developer um, with the game studio uh, Paperhouse. Uh, they're working on a game, Paperbark, and Terry joins us in the studio now. Terry, thanks for coming in. Hey, not a problem. So, uh, I kind of, I was telling you sort of um, uh, a little bit before that I, I flicked on the video and I was watching it and I was kind of uh, very much transported to uh, um, uh, a little piece of Australia 
I did get the sense of that hot weather, which I think you're trying to encourage, yeah. uh, or you have been at, at one point. Um, how much time did you spend on sort of animation and getting the kind of the look and the feel right before you sort of have moved on to the game? I understand there's been a sort of fever of activity in the past little yeah. while. Um, That's been literally the biggest part of the game more than the mechanics and the story and everything we're really really trying to capture what it feels like to be in the bush during summer like that's that's absolute number one for us so there's been a lot of research we've been looking at different artists different musicians different pieces of cinema all that kind of thing even just going for walks that kind of thing so that's pretty much been our entire development process up until I guess this point or a couple months ago Mm. Um, just really trying to capture that feeling Mm. Um, so now we're at the point where we're going to start moving moving forward a bit stronger and who are some of the artists that inspired the the kind of look and feel of Um, definitely Albert Namajira was was number one I'd say Um, you know just apart from just being such an iconic Australian artist um, we're Ryan um, who's who's our programmer, Ryan Bolton, he developed this watercolour shader. So the the game, as the game plays, the environment kind of gets painted in. And so we wanted to try and capture that fluidity. Um, but also in, in, I guess, in an Australian way, you know, how do you how do you capture that landscape, that fluidity and those colours right? And, you know, you, can, you can't go past Albert Namajira, really. I, I, I watched the video as well and... Um, one thing that struck me me immediately is that every game I've ever played must have been set in a forest that's modelled on Europe or North America because as soon as I saw the familiar familiar trees and the familiar colours, it it felt at once at home but at once like novel because it was in a video game and I'd never seen that before. Yeah. Um, So can you explain what's the uh, what sort of a game is it and what what is the sort of mechanics? Isn't it an adventure game set in the Australian bush? Oh look, that's a tough question and that's something that we're really, really working on now to try and get right um it the game is becoming a bit of a beast um and and the direction in which it gets developed is is something that that we talk about a lot and we iterate on a lot we want to make sure that we do the bush justice and we want to make sure that we do it um it correctly in terms of our artistic vision i guess um yeah but but i get i guess that feeling of of being in the bush and is something that a lot of people definitely relate to and that's something like that we we wanted to to explore in in a digital format that's interactive because it hasn't like like you're saying like it hasn't really been done before um which i guess is a bit of the hook but but that's not why we did it it just happened that it's you know it's something that we're we all feel kind of strongly about and and just wanted to explore those ideas so, and having um, um, just recently been at a, a games festival, do you think there is a, a good place for Australian games? Something that's kind of quintessentially, you know, um, in the bush and about the land and uh, and about our animals and, and yeah, so forth. certainly. Um, and I think exploring it through the lens of. Uh, you know, basically uh, a moving art piece is really, really fascinating. Um, you were at the um, International Melbourne Games Festival recently. Um, what did you get up to during the week? Um, look, in all honesty, a lot of drinking. <laughs> um, it was a really, really action-packed couple of weeks. Um, um, yeah, a couple of weeks. There was, there was a lot of events, a lot of parties, that kind of thing. Um, we managed to get into an exhibition called Contours, mm. which showed a lot of... Um, local made games, a lot of fringe games, um, not just contemporary, but like that have been developed over, you know, 
like I think last 10 years or so. Um, so that was really good. We also haven't really had a working build well, demo to show people. So that was, that was a great little platform to be able to let people come in and have a, have a go at the game. Um, yeah, but apart from that, there was just a lot of events that we, we just kind of had little, little sprinklings with, but nothing. Lots of networking. Yeah, yeah, and just hanging out really. Like we, like the Melbourne game scene, or even the Australian game scene is just such a vibrant, supportive community. Like, you know, every, like we always look forward to the next event because we just get to hang out and help each other. It's really great. Do you see Paperbark as something that will be really popular in Australia because it's, it's, it's familiar? Uh, or do you think it could do well overseas internationally because it has the novelty of such a you know interesting setting that people aren't, haven't seen before? Yeah, well, the way we describe it is is a game that would be interesting to people who have grown up in Australia or are interested in it. And I think that's, it's, that is a little bit difficult and because it's so early on in development, it's kind of hard for us to really kind of foresee any international success, even let, like local success really. But... Um, yeah, I think I think it is something that could resonate with people um, overseas. It just it's just a matter of whether or not it really connects. Is it's hard to say. I, I'd like to I'd like to think it would. What are the animal protagonists? Because Aussie animals are pretty pretty popular. Overseas. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, at the moment, there's a wombat and a sugar glider. They're the two main, I guess, protagonists. Um, it's really interesting for me though. Um, in, in developing it and thinking about it because I've always seen it as a game about the bush more than a game about a wombat or a sugar glider. Mm. Um, that seems that's the hero of the game more than anything else. So I guess that's why we've spent so long kind of developing it. Um, that being said, we are working on a story at the moment to really um, to really bring out uh, I, I guess the the emotions that that can happen during. A wander through the bush during summer and, and what that would be like as, as a wombat, I guess. Um, yeah, so that's something that we, which we're kind of working through at the moment. Mm. Do you find with, uh, with funding behind you, uh, obviously it makes things a little bit easier and you get breathing space and, you know, resources and so forth. Does it change the expectations? Did it slow down the development? Did you sort of take a step back and thought, okay, it, it got serious now or? Yeah, a little bit. Um, cause the game was originally developed as a student project. Um, in RMIT and we ended up bringing that forward to FilmVic um, to apply for funding. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely a burden. You know, it's it's essentially taxpayers' money that's helping fund this. Um, so there's there's a great deal of responsibility which comes behind that. You know, we, we need to do that justice. It's not technically our money, you know. Um, so we want to use it to its absolute fullest potential and to really develop develop a game that anyone, or well, essentially everyone would be proud of, not just ourselves. Um, but it also helps because, you know, we have, you know, contractual agreements that we need to, to meet and certain milestones and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it, definitely, it definitely helps. Can you talk a little bit about the technical side? You're targeting uh, mobile platforms, um, at least initially. Um, how's the... What, what's the interesting challenges on the uh, development? Well, I guess back to the, the funding thing a little bit is we wanted to release it on iOS. That was definitely a focus for us, but none of us are iOS developers. So that that is completely new territory for us. Um, but in terms of funding, that was one of the things which we, we needed to do, which we were totally okay with. Um, but Ryan, the programmer, um, 
he's more than that, but really, um, he just did so much of the heavy lifting during the early stages of the year during development, porting it to iOS. Um, and there, there definitely is some technical limitations, like there's some hardware limitations and that kind of thing. So we can only, the game can really only be so big. Um, you know, we're really looking at like poly count and, and also that shader, that wonderful kind of painty shader, um, is a bit of an iOS no-no, so we're kind of on the back foot with that. Um, but we're, yeah, it's it's running fine as it is now, and um, we we definitely have some room to move in in terms of you know pushing pushing the hardware. So yeah, still got a bit of space. Given that this is a continuation of a, a graduate project, um, how have you sort of seen the, the changes between when it was just you know a year-long project for your grad, um, for your final year at RMIT? And how it's transitioned to what you do professionally? Yeah, well, it's it's been a hard road to be honest. Um, even though I entered as a mature age student, like there was definitely this is an assignment, mm. so it, it had to meet certain criteria, and also we're juggling jobs and other um, subjects and that kind of thing. Um, also, the time frame was very di- different. But now, you know, like we're, we're a fully fledged company slash studio, um, and there's all all of this real life stuff that we need to worry about. You know, we need to worry about tax. We need to, you know, worry about like all the legal obligations based around a contract, and also just in in terms of employing help and what does that mean? Yeah, every um, second person I, I spoke to at PAX um, basically told me that they got involved, um, you know, in the games industry by wanting to be a game dev and then of course at least one person in the company has to take care of the business and usually somebody puts up their hand and has to sort of tackle that and then they find they do less um, in their job making the game yeah. than taking care of the company. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that's, that's definitely a reality um, and I, I, a lot of my mates who have recently started up their own studio and are working on projects could definitely relate to that. It's just the reality of of running a company. You know, there is that business element of it, and it, you know, for us, we all try and help each other out and that kind of thing. And like I was saying before about um, the game, com- uh, the games community being so supportive is there are a lot of people that are willing to who have successful companies um, to to come in and say, hey, you know, do you need a hand with this? Do you need a hand with that? And that's that's been absolutely wonderful as well. So you're aiming to release. Um by the latter half of next year. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what are the sort of things that you want to lock down, um, before release? Um, definitely, definitely having the story fully fleshed out and realized, I think is, is really, really important and making sure that, um, certain gameplay elements really underline that the important things that we want to say within the game. Um, like even though in a superficial level it is just about a wombat in the bush and that kind of thing, there are some things which we would like to say, um, through, yeah, through the narrative. Hmm. Well, uh, we would love to uh, see more of it uh, when you have it ready. Um, it's an exciting project. It's, it is weird to kind of start something as a as a school project and then kind of get the funding for it and then it becomes a commercial operation. Yeah. And you know, but um, you learn you learn a lot that way, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. Just a few minutes left in our second last show for the year. Um, there are a few things that we wanted to point out to you um, before we go, and some weirdness that uh, we always like to bring to you. 
Uh, Future Assembly uh, is back uh, for 2016. Um, I went along, uh, I think Vanessa did too last year to check it out, and it was all right. It's a good space at the showgrounds, uh, like a little little bit of a hike, but um, a big space, and there were lots of uh, keen exhibitors. It's one of those things, guys, where you kind of have um, big people talking about why Instagram's important, and you kind of fall asleep, but then there's lots of little exhibitors doing something weird with like uh, uh, drones or 3D printing or something like that and they put their own money into it and they're doing it in their garage and you know you kind of hope to see them blow up and, and do something amazing with it um, so yeah it's back um, it's kind of one of those weird things where um, you're not sure kind of where you should be um, they'll have a sort of keynote speech up there and they'll have all the exhibitors there and then there'll be workshops upstairs but um, it looks great this year um, some of the uh, exhibitors um, they've got um, heaps of stuff in augmented reality. Um, 3D printing is still going strong. Um, one of the exhibitors, Black AI, is uh, automating the observation of public spaces uh, with AI. So I think that's great. I kind of um, really hope that we shouldn't have to be pushing pedestrian buttons at crossings yeah. um, as part of the whole kind of driverless cars things. So I think people in cars should be interacting in a better way. Um, I don't know. I kind of, it's, it's an exciting time of year. Um, there's lots of events on and lots of shows and stuff and um this is this is one of the good ones um if you would like to get along to this we do have a a sneaky uh, couple of tickets um sitting uh on our desk so uh if you want to tweet at us uh at bite into it um uh, and maybe message us your subscriber number um we can hook you up with uh, a ticket or two um snap specs Snap specs. Um, I, I can't say I know heaps about them, but I, I know they're a thing, and people are starting to hack them already. Um, apparently, you can record with them, and usually a light goes off, and of course, people have started covering that up. Pretty much. You're, you're new to, to Snap, I understand. You started yes. using it last week. How, yes. How, have you been finding it? Um, I've found some shows and some people to, to follow, and as of yet, I've, I've yet to do anything myself. Mm. But it's an interesting format to, to broadcast in mm. really, really short form. Do you uh, do you take a lot of photos in public? Like you are, are you an no? I'm not or? there yet. I still get a bit bashful mm. when when it comes to aiming the camera at myself in mm. public. Um, well, maybe this Dick Tracy kind of style might, might work for you. If yeah, you pick maybe. Up some snap specs. Well, so what are they, what are they doing to kind of um, hack their hack their specs? So basically, um, when you have these um, snap specs on, they're kind of like um, Google Glass, so mm. they're just augmented like glasses essentially, yeah. um, and you can record anything that's going on around you. Mm. Um, and uh, usually, when uh, you're recording, a light will go off. And, of course, uh, people are starting to cover it up with tape or spray paint over it, um, meaning that you can surveillance anybody oh. um, without their knowledge. That's a bit uncool. Mm. We'll keep an eye on that one, um, pun intended. Um, another thing to watch is um, Google's AI um, and their, um, the way they process language. Um, there's been some interesting developments there, Colin. Yes, so the uh, Google has a translation system called the Neural Machine uh, Translation, and uh, there's some reporting. There was a paper that came out this week suggesting that um, rather than have a human language in the middle uh, between translations between other languages, uh, that the neural networks are able to develop their own internal language to represent meaning, and therefore they can go from any one language to another with, without um, having to have an intermediate. So basically, the uh, the system has invented a language of its own um, in which to 
to um, understand what it's talking about. Should we be concerned about that or is that just an output from uh, a smart program? Look, on the one hand, no, we shouldn't be concerned because the computers, it's going to be a while before we're turned into slaves or Mm. sources of protein or whatever. Mm. But um, but my day job is is neural network uh, research actually and... Mm. Uh, there's a, a lively discussion now about can we actually understand what's going on inside these things because a neural ne- a neural network is just a big bunch of numbers that encodes some sort of real you know really weird and interesting logic mm. and understanding what it's doing I mean, all of those numbers is actually not trivial. So if a neural network is driving your car or making medical decisions or, uh, you know, translating an important discussion for you, well, we might know that it works well or it doesn't work well, but what's really going on in there? And if intelli- artificial intelligence really did emerge, uh, it might not be obvious to us at the moment that it happened. Interesting. Um, do you, what's your sort of particular sort of you know vertical discipline in that? What, what, what do you spend most of your time? So I'm teaching computers to find weird astrophysical events called uh, gravitational lenses. So, ah. I have to, so I'm training neural networks to look through um, sort of petabytes of astronomical data. So not that that one probably won't go wrong and lead to the uh, machine overthrow. But uh, but the the field of neural networks is is exploding, and you know every aspect of our lives you know can be can be touched by that as automation gets um, more and more of a thing. So if you want to go and have a look, what's going inside the mind of a neural network? Uh, Google Deep Dream, uh, which is uh, something that Google put out, where they sort of take images and munge them through the neural network, um, altering them uh, to f- match the patterns that neural neural network has learned. So if you train a neural network to tell the difference between two types of dogs, it starts seeing dogs everywhere, mm. and the outputs are absolutely trippy. So uh, check it out, Deep Dream. Sounds like fun. Uh, it's been a fun show. Uh, thanks to everyone for tuning in and uh, having a listen. Uh, thanks to our guests, uh, Alexa and Terry. Um, we definitely learned a lot. Uh, we've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening for the final show of 2016. Uh, obviously, you can check out our podcast at rrr.org.au slash bite into it. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.